Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Knowledge is power. And when you have that knowledge and you choose to ignore that knowledge and you hurt somebody, you're taking away, you know, their agency, by the way. Um, and it's an abuse of power. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Um, Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm I'm looking forward to the podcast and I'm I'm not only like it's stuck in this spot because we're doing the podcast, but also because <laughs> I meant to show you this before we got on. I am in such a tangle of cords <laughs> from my headphones <laughs> and microphone that I basically can't move except for like a couple inches in either direction. So, And, and that was because we were on such a tight schedule. We clearly were not going to give you the time to untangle your headphones. <laughs> no, no. I mean, people don't know, but behind the scenes, you're like, you know, you're yeah, like, yeah. You, this is my time. You can't ta- do that on a, my time. A taskmaster. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> anyway, how are you, Steve? I am good. I'm good. I was uh, so I, I so I haven't talked to any of the listeners about this, but I, so I had two trials coming up that were going to be back to back and one settled right before trial. And then uh, as of this morning, my second trial just got continued. So I went from two trials to no trials. Um, so, uh, you know, always good. And uh, are you going to tell the listeners what you did with that unexpected uh, oh, yeah. time that you so, had? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when I settled my uh, when I settled my first case, right when I should have been doing trial prep, uh, I decided to go to Disney World. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so how was it? Because you had separate reservations from the rest of the family, so you had to. Yes. Uh, so, I, I mean, if if we want to do an entire podcast on how to navigate the Disney World no. system, I can now do that. Uh, but basically, <laughs> you have to go. Uh, I mean, because because the way they they're so um, because of the p- pandemic, like they're so uh, set in their reservations and and making those, and you can't swap them or anything. But basically, uh, once we got to the hotel. Uh, I just kissed the ass of the of the guest services person there for a long time until they finally switched my wife's tickets to me and then allowed her to buy new tickets um, for her that we could then all sort of link together. And it took uh, like a good hour and a half to do that. But it's uh, they don't make it easy on you. I'll tell you that, man. So so. What I what the listeners should really get from this is you're a Disney adult (laughs) and that's it. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I like to go to Disney with my kids. I, I, I wouldn't say I'm like a massive Disney fan, but hey, I'll go to any amusement park yeah. and have fun. But yeah, uh, and I will say the Star Wars stuff was pretty cool. I hadn't done that before, um, and then, um, um, you know, all the other rides, all the other stuff. It was a lot yeah. of fun, and yeah. uh, you know, and certainly a, a good break from getting ready for trial and just head down to end up in Disney World. Right. Well, speaking of trial. Yes, we're going to talk about, yes, yes. Very, very nice segue there to our, uh, we have a a fantastic guest all the way from San Francisco, California. We have Doris Chang, who is a partner in the Walk Up Melodia Kelly and Schoenberger firm in San Francisco, California. How are you doing, Doris? Fantastic. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. This, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this one, and I, I, I'm going to go through Doris's bio because uh, she's got tons of great accomplishments and tons of really great trial uh, uh, verdicts and results. Um, but Doris and I actually talked ahead of time about this case, 
and uh, and talked about which one she should do. And we actually picked one that was, from my perspective, and I think will be um, good for a lot of our listeners, a pretty difficult case. And um, and with a lot of obstacles, and um, and Doris and her uh, trial team just did a fantastic job in getting a um, a result for a uh, for uh, the tragic death of a young man. Um, yes, but, Steve, um, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I do want to just mention because we we talk about the show sometimes that a lot of times we'll be talking about a trial that had a good result. And so in retrospect, people might be listening or thinking about it and being like, yeah, I'd take that case. Anybody would take <laughs> right. that case, right? right? Because it was tried well. And so, yes. you know, the lawyers have overcome a lot. This is one where even reading about it and knowing what happened, you're like, man, there was a lot to yes. overcome in this case. It's, it's, it's one of those cases. And we'll get to this in a second, but just there, there's a lot of them that when it first walks in the door, you're like, I don't know if I, I would take that case, but, uh, but we'll yeah. talk to Doris about that because it's a, I mean, obviously a fantastic job, but, but first of all, let me tell everybody that you can look up Doris at the walkuplawoffice.com. So that's W-A-L-K-U-P lawoffice.com. And, um, and Doris, I'm going to, I'm going to brag on you a little bit. So Doris uh, has been, I mean, the amount of accolades she's gotten are, uh, are impressive and long, but she's been named in the best lawyers of America, super lawyers, uh, San Francisco's best lawyers, uh, she's been named as a top 50 uh, a female lawyer in Northern California and a top 100 lawyer in Nor Northern California, uh, named as the Law Dragon 500 leading lawyer. And in 2017, she was Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers of America. Uh, she is an adjunct professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law and the program director for the National Institute of Trial Advocacy uh, Western Region. And she... Um, uh, actually, in 2015, she won the University of San Francisco uh, Professionalism or Professional Achievement Award. And in 2012, she won the Robert Keaton Award for Outstanding Service by National Institute of Trial Advocacy. And as I said, she not only uh, has uh, published, uh, written, spoken and tried a bunch of cases, uh, but she's just a great person. And I should mention, I, I forgot to mention, she has two, two books you can read the, um, that she was a co-author of. One is the Rudder Group California Practice Guide on Personal Injury, and then the Trial Practice Guide, Mastering the Mechanics of Civil Jury Trials. So, uh, Doris, we're so happy to have you on. Thank you. <laughs> it was way too long, and thank you for <laughs> mentioning all those things. I should say, you know, the Rudder Group book is a 10 volume work that's updated. So unless you're just going to the bathroom and want something to read. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I mean, you may not be pulling that off the shelf. <laughs> and you and, and you take all of those 10 volumes to trial every time you go. So just so you can, you know, thumb through them if, if, when a question comes up. That's right. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure that took no time at all to write 10 volumes. So, uh, no, that's great. That's fantastic. I'm only responsible for chapters six through 10. That's it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, well, Doris, let's talk a little bit about this case. Uh, the name of the case is Maria Renteria versus the Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or otherwise known as LACMTA. Um, and uh, Maria was the mother of Luis Alvarez Jr. Um, and on May 15, 2017, Luis was uh, riding his bicycle down, uh, I think I saw his Crenshaw. Crenshaw Boulevard, which um, uh, is also has a number of uh, vehicles and buses uh, buses on. It was a construction area, 
and um, it was there was K rails um, along the along the way. But essentially, uh, what happened, and I'll, I'll I'll give sort of the shortened version, and then we'll talk about the longer version as we go go along. But the um, the bus uh, was stopped at a at a bus stop. Um, Luis was coming up behind on the right hand side of um, of the bus as he was supposed to do under the law. Um, and you could see him. The, the, the one thing about buses everywhere, but also in California, is there are cameras inside the bus. There are cameras outside the bus. There's cameras facing backwards. There's camera facing forwards. So there's lots of cameras uh, all around the bus. But you, but he was coming up on the right hand side since the bus was stopped and blocking his lane. He went to pass the bus on the left, and um, as he was passing the bus on the the uh, as he was passing the bus on the left. He uh, started to overtake the bus and was going to move back to the right, as he's supposed to do under the law. Uh, but at the same time that he was going to move to the right, the bus essentially took off and started to move. And it sounded like even from the bus driver's own statement to the police that a that a rider uh, asked her a question. Uh, so she you know, kind of grabs the microphone to answer the question at the same time this is happening uh, with Louise trying to pass her and then move in front of her. And so basically she does not see Louise uh, and hits him with her uh, left um, front and, and the tire. And essentially he gets pulled under uh, the, the left front tire and drug for about 70 feet uh, and, and killed as a result of this. Um, and there's a, a, a lot to unpack here, but I, I wanted to first, Doris, uh, and then I should say, uh, I always say the verdict, which uh, um, this case was tried in 2019, uh, but the total verdict was uh, $4 million. And then there was um, California is a pure comparative uh, fault uh, state, meaning that uh, even if you don't get uh, 50% on the defendant, you still recover whatever percentage you get. Uh, Luis was found 65% at fault, and we'll talk about that. And the and the uh, LAC MTA was found 35% at fault. Um, so some of the things that uh, that we need to talk about are that uh, so Luis was was uh, riding a bicycle um, that was a fixed gear bicycle, and the defense made a big point of this. Uh, and in fact, I I wrote it down. They called it a borrowed brakeless bicycle. And, um, and I didn't know what they meant by brakeless bicycle, but apparently that's when you have a fixed gear, uh, bicycle, which where essentially the uh, gear is attached to the wheel. So the wheel turns whenever the pedals are turning. Um, so when, I guess the way you brake it is you stop pedaling and the wheel stops moving. Um, but so they called it the, a, a, a brakeless bicycle. He wasn't wearing a helmet. Um, he, uh, at least I'm sure they were claiming he might've been riding uh, recklessly and not watching out for himself. And then um, I think this did not come into evidence, but there was uh, there, there was at least some amount of marijuana in his backpack. Um, and so, you know, all of these things um, sort of come together in this case, um, you know, as Yvonne and I were saying, when it first comes in, you know, they, I think you all did a great job of uh, pointing out the number of things that the bus driver didn't do. But th there's certainly, um, you know, some issues, that, I, you know, especially with bicycles, I think, for one, um, that there's 
maybe I don't want to say people are necessarily biased against bicyclists, but I but I've certainly been in a situation where I thought bicyclists were were riding in a way where they weren't following the rules of the road. Um, and then, you know, and sometimes bicyclists don't um, ride in the safest way um, um, that they could. I, in the police report in this case, uh, it sounded like the witnesses who saw it and even the police were basically blaming both um, uh, Luis and the bus driver for uh, different violations. One, Luis for making a, a, a turn or a pass that he that he shouldn't have made. It was an unsafe turn, I think is what they called it. And then the bus driver for driving too fast for the conditions. Um, but um, so all that being said, it was a, a, a um, Doris and her team uh, took this case and and this case that had some some definite jury biases, some difficulties and did just a fantastic job in, in getting a verdict on it. Um, and I guess the place where we'll start, Doris, is what uh, is what Yvonne was mentioning is uh, when you see a case like this come in. Was there hesitation about taking it, and and what, and if there was, what what then made you say, no, I think this one's one one to go after. Well, I have to give credit to my partners, uh, Doug Seltzer and Mike Kelly, actually for taking this case. I joined on at the end, and I hope I think everybody here loves trying cases. If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you love trying cases. Um, and so, the really the first thing for me was. Uh, like three months before trial, Doug came in my office and said, yeah, you know, getting ready to try this case. And, uh, you know, everybody's busy. The other person who's on this case is busy. And he wanted to take off for his uh, birthday and take a trip before trial. And he said, can I try it with you? And he looked at me kind of like, do you really want to do it? Sure. And, you know, we both were excited because we tried cases together before. So first, I mean, it's just like, I'll go try it. And that was a, you know, really great thing about having trial partners like I do, because you want to try a case with them. But a case like this, what made uh, either, you know, Doug or, or Mike say, well, let's just go do it. And you've got a young kid, you know, uh, in a really likable mom. And I think that was a big part of it. Um, when we're evaluating cases, and I actually was just talking about this with some of our young lawyers recently, like, you know, here are a couple of things you look at. Personality of the plaintiff, liability and causation, damages, and then collectability, right? I mean, how often do we see a case where it's like, okay, in California, the, you know, minimum insurance policy limits is 15,000. So you could have, you know, this horrible, tragic case and uh, it's not collectible. And this woman, the mother of Luis was so sweet, so kind, um, completely unassuming. You know, it's the sort of person that you think, I want to help. And that's kind of where it started, honestly. And then the fact that you get the police report and it's like, okay, this is on both sides. You've got the, you know, Los Angeles um, Muni um, Municipal Transportation Authority. Like, who's sympathetic to them? Right, <laughs> and right. It, that's kind of, I think, where it's, shoots off like okay let's let's take a chance on all of these things but especially the mom that we liked a lot without even knowing her entire life story at that point 
Yeah. One thing I want to talk about more later when we talk about the damages, but so in California, my understanding of the wrongful death law is that you're essentially looking at it from the loss of the survivor and what, what they lost in, in losing their uh, relationship, their companionship, the love of the person they lost, which is different than Georgia, where we try uh, a lot of cases, which is you look at the um, value of the life from the uh, perspective of the decedent. Um, so, so I guess in, especially in a case like yours, the, uh, mom's personality or the parent's personality is very important because they're the person who, uh, the jury's going to be, um, taking their perspective of, of what, what the loss that they've suffered is. That's right. Uh, under our jury instructions, it's the, uh, wrongful death heirs, what they've lost is the love, care, comfort, society, companionship, um, all of those elements of the person. And what you can't recover for is grief or sorrow. You know, where's the line on that? It, you know, nobody ever defines it. The other thing that you can recover on the economic side is, you know, loss of financial support, funeral and burial expenses. But that's it. So when right. you have a decedent child who, you know, wasn't providing for the wrongful death heirs it's purely general damages purely non-economic yeah so go ahead Ron. no 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 you go ahead steve well i was just going to say so then i mean is there any ability to uh look at like if they were in college i guess and look like they were going to have a good career and then maybe would support the parents later on you you can't put on evidence like that's too speculative correct yeah okay um what i was going to ask you know it's a little bit off topic but it's going back to um, when the case first comes in and Doris, this might not be something you can speak to, but I have a feeling you've dealt with it in your cases, regardless of it, if it was this specific case, but it's coming in, you know, that there's going to be a, the video is going to be really important in this case. And because it's a bust, you know, where some of the video is, but it looks like some of it, you, you all were able to piece together from surveillance video. Um, and I was just wondering if you were able to speak to that in terms of, um, the actions that you all took to get that video, how you got it, how, I mean, we know it's important, um, but I think it's amazing the kinds of things that people are able to put together, but it's so much of it is so time sensitive when you get out there, when you get to these locations that might have surveillance. Um, do you have any info on, 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 in this case, what happened in terms of securing the video? Yes. So we were really lucky in this case that the police did a good job of looking for surveillance as part okay. of the investigation. Um, so not only did they capture what the bus had, but they did check with some of the local businesses. And then on top of that, we had an investigator um, canvas the area as well for video. And, you know, the police officers, a lot of time, Often, often, you know, in California, they're busy, they're doing thousands of them at a time, and you don't always get the stuff you want. And it's so, so disappointing. Uh, but when there are catastrophic cases like this and a death, we're really lucky that they spend the time, the CHP um, and the local authorities usually spend the time to get the video, to get data like that. Yeah. Uh, and to do almost kind of like a mini accident reconstruction, certainly on the highway cases. Yeah. Right, right. 
So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. In Georgia here, there, once if there's a death and there is a potential prosecutable case, then they, they, we get a what we call a specialized collision reconstruction team involved. Um, and I guess what I'm wondering, and, and that's when you'll get like a really good, thorough workup where they not only, you know, find all the surveillance films and, you know, talk to all the witnesses, but go out and, you know, do a total station or something like that to the, to the scene. Um, was there ever any, any, uh, thought or inclination that there might be criminal charges involving the the bus driver in this case? Uh, no, not against the bus driver. So I'll say in California, that's been a certainly a priority for the police in the last 10 years, at least, where if there is a death case, you'll see a companion criminal action. But it's usually not against a governmental entity. Right. And so, you know, I, I mean, I could say a lot about it, gosh, the feelings on that, but it's usually an individual or a private, you know, corporation where the police, the DA is considering criminal charges. And then in those cases, if it's, you know, like a vehicle accident like this, they're typically uh, misdemeanors. I mean, unless there is some um, drug or alcohol abuse. So, right. you know, we didn't have that here. And that's fortunate because, as you know, in these types of cases, when there's a criminal case involved, mm-hmm. you can't depose any of the witnesses, or at least not that the defendant witnesses, because they'll plead the fifth. And then you're just stuck in these awful depositions getting nothing. Well, not, not only that, but you can't even get the file uh, until they're, at least we right. can't, until they're done yeah. with their criminal prosecution. So, um, you know, that's, it, it definitely uh, puts the brakes on 
pushing a case. So, uh, yeah. uh, it, it can make things very tough. So, um, so as far as the, um, you know, I, I read the trial brief that you uh, sent us. So as far as the claims against the bus driver, it sounds like there was a sort of a series of policies that she had been trained on that she didn't follow. Like, for instance, she's supposed to check her mirrors before pulling out of a bus stop. She's specifically instructed to check for bike riders. Um, and then, you know, if there is a bike rider, sort of let them, you know, go in front of you and, and stop the bus. Uh, and, and essentially what she had said, um, was that she didn't see, um, she never saw Luis. And in fact, it, it's not even clear that she knew she had run over him at the beginning since it took her so long to stop. Is that, was, is that, is that right? That she didn't, um, see him when she ran over him? She didn't see him when she ran over him. She felt something and, you know, dragged his body 70 feet. So uh, the the actual events were her bus was stopped. She came, you know, she stopped at, at um, the street to pick up some passengers. And uh, Luis sees the bus and we can see by the video, he goes around the bus. And then while he is still alongside the bus, she takes off. Uh, and then drives for um, at least 15, something on the order of like 12 to 15 seconds, you know, before this collision comes to a complete stop. But uh, she, he manages on this fixie to get alongside of her, pull up alongside of her so that she's visible in his mirrors for at least eight seconds, like at least 200 feet um, and doesn't slow down. In fact, she's picking up speed and there are vehicles behind Luis, you know, who want him to get out of the way. So he's pedaling hard. And with right. these fixy bicycles, you know, as you mentioned, it's a fixed gear. So it's all on the cyclist, which is the challenge for a lot of, um, you know, young cycling fanatics who, you know, really want to test their endurance and everything because it's not um, the only gear is you. Right. The opposite. Yeah. And if you want to stop, you've got to stop pedaling and backpedal in order to stop the momentum. And so that was one of the, as you mentioned, Steve, the uh, topics that came up in this case, which we made a motion to eliminate on because it gives the impression, I think, that he was reckless or some, you know, aggressive uh, cyclist guy. And, uh, and so, but when he was cycling to get ahead of the bus, uh, he he gets ahead of her enough that there's some clearance and he cuts over to the right to get out of, you know, the other active traffic lane. Um, and I think because of the height uh, difference between where she sits and his, the height of his bicycle, uh, he immediately goes under the wheel right. and that's the dragging part. So she claimed she never actually saw him, uh, you know, and, and she wasn't even clear if she saw him when he actually got in front of the um, the bus. And I saw. So this is a construction uh, zone and, the, and there was K rails along the side. And, and I, I saw that, you know, once she starts to speed up, at least the allegation was made that that, that is sort of sort of puts him in this sort of trap situation, because, as you mentioned, he's got vehicles behind him. So it's not like he can just slow down and get behind the bus or else he might risk getting hit in the back by some cars, I assume. Um, and, there, and there's really nowhere to go off the side of the road because you got these K rails. Is that what it was? 
Right. So there, this area was being, you know, renovated. Uh, there was street construction happening. And so uh, there were a series of K-rails lined up on his left-hand side. So he couldn't just go over the median or something like that. Uh, he was boxed in. Yeah. And he, it looks very boxed in and like in the pictures. I thought it was a great idea. And in, in that, um, I don't know if it was a trial brief where you had um, photos of, of what, of the scene and what the video was showing. And it was so important in a case like this, but it's also, I think for people listening now, maybe it's hard to visualize, but looking at it, although probably like not if you live in Atlanta, cause you can probably picture this exact right, situation, right. but, um, yeah. like anywhere remotely near the airport or anywhere in the city. But, um, it, it does look very like, um, I could see it cutting both ways because on one hand I I could see how he was in, he was definitely in a situation that would be really scary and where his options were limited. But the flip side of that would be, I look at it and I'm like, I would never ride my bike around there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a really good point. The selection of photos for the trial is critical because, you know, you do have, when you're looking from the, um, bicyclist angle he is boxed in so he has limited options but if you only show that view you know what you don't see is what's behind him what kind of pressure Mm. is behind him and so we definitely made it a point to have an accident reconstruction grid that showed that there were vehicles behind him you know because your imagination is the only thing on the road is the bus and the cyclist and you think well you know, your mind just goes to all these places that, that somehow this is preventable. If you're the cyclist, you just pull back. Do you like stop pedaling as hard? Do you let the bus go and then move over? And and those are assumptions that we make based upon the limitations of what's in the picture. Right. Uh, so. And how did you deal with or or maybe set the stage for people who are less familiar with the area? Like, is is this you know, looking at the picture and living in Atlanta, which is not bike friendly, I look at it and I'm like, uh, you just, you know, you'd have to find another way. I know that not everybody has a car. That's not a luxury people have, but I'd be like, you can't ride your bike right there. Um, you know, for your jurors, you know, how much are you having to explain? Yes, this is a place people bike, or is this something they know? Is it something they see a lot in town? It was something that they saw a lot. And mind you, this was in Los Angeles. So Doug and I were the (laughs) out-of-towners. Right. (laughs) Right. There is like two different countries between Northern California and Southern California. Uh, These jurors were more familiar with this area than Doug and I were. I mean, we went out to the scene and we did our Google mapping and everything. Um, But this was an area that people were familiar with and familiar with how dense the traffic is. And that there are a lot of cyclists because... There are a lot of people who don't have the ability to, you know, drive their own vehicles or even have a vehicle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so talk a little bit about jury selection. And I mean, so you've got these issues of uh, one, it's a bicycle. Two, he's not wearing his helmet. Um, You know, three is this this brakeless bicycle or, you know. Um, and then as Yvonne mentioned, and, and, and I agree with her, you know, one thing that I would be thinking as you sort of see this roadway that, that basically has nowhere to go, if something goes wrong, I might think twice before riding down that roadway. How, how did you handle all of those issues on jury selection? And, and I guess, how did the jury respond? Uh, it was a pretty young jury. 
so that was one thing I think to notice who's coming for jury trial, at least in 2019. Uh, I thought there were a lot of Gen Xers and millennials, which I think matters because, you know, they're trying to be open-minded, I think, about people and not judgmental, but there's still a huge bias against bicyclists and against, and more so against bicyclists than people who don't wear helmets. Right. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. Um, and I have to say, I got, this was a, one of the important cases for any, I mean, I shouldn't say important, but anytime that you have a bicyclist case, you should call a jury consultant. You know, I, I've always thought kind of in the traditional way of as travelers, we're supposed to be the people who talk to jurors and um, persuade them. But you think about the uh, jury consultants, the ones that are really good, you know, they've been in more jury trials than you and I can conceive of. I mean, right. one told me he's done like 350 trials. I'm like, wow. Okay. So he has seen the different permutations of attitudes and, um, what I did was I, I spoke to a, a jury consultant. Actually, she was trying another case. <laughs> I had drinks with her because, you know, I was getting ready for voir dire. I'm like, oh, God, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> this is fantastic. Let me tell you about my case. Yeah. And, you know, I just bought her time. And, and she's like, here are like a handful of questions. And really, it was find out the people who already believe that your client is completely at fault or at fault, either one of those at fault at a minimum or completely at fault um, for the accident because they're a bicyclist, just because they're a bicyclist, knowing nothing else. And then how many thought that uh, he was negligent or at fault just because he wasn't wearing a helmet. And so isolating those factors gave us great cause challenges. And that became, I think, my you know, how you can get defensive when you have these bad facts and you're, you're actually, you're, the worst thing is that you're in Vaudeer and you're actually trying to convince them this is not so bad. Yeah. Yeah. You, know? yeah. you can't do that. You actually have to fully endorse. How many of you think this is horrible? How many of you have already an opinion about this? Uh, and California has a um, statute that says uh, that you're entitled to explore um, impartiality. And I think the language is like, you know, that they have to, that they are completely impartial. And so if you can use those words in your jury selection questions um, and get them to concede that they cannot be completely impartial, mm -hmm. yeah, then there's a good chance for getting them out for cause because it mirrors the language. And I think we have to, you know, as trial lawyers, not be sloppy about uh, the language there because it's tied to the statute. I mean, we're we're forcing the judges to rule based upon the statute, not based upon a feeling that we have, you know. So I that was those were a couple of like, you know, takeaways of just immersing myself in wanting these people to say that they had a bias, uh, that they didn't feel completely partial or impartial rather. And, and then there was, you know, we did manage to keep out the marijuana. Uh, and I think for all of our listeners, you know, the hardest thing about marijuana really is the THC level. And you don't know, you know, how long that's been in the person's system. So unless, you know, there was evidence that they had 
smoked that day or right before, I think that's another really good way to make sure that you keep the evidence out. Uh, you know, the general rule is you can't, hearsay is hearsay. Hearsay is any out-of-court statement offered for the truth. And so when you have these reports, um, that's hearsay. So unless you can actually get somebody in to validate it, uh, it shouldn't be coming in, not even through the police officer, not even through a medical um, physician. So, you know, something to think about in terms of your motions and limine on that, because uh, California, a few years ago, the, the court of, I mean, the um, Supreme Court decided to take up the issue on hearsay and write an entire treatise on it. <laughs> and oh, wow. so we have, you know, <laughs> and we have now judges really kind of forcing people to bring the actual authors of certain reports, even if, and like this was from the coroner's office, you know, it was a toxicology report. And uh, we were able to keep that out uh, because we argued it aggressively on on hearsay and uh, speculation. Okay, so it, I mean, it, so it, the reason why it didn't come in was basically because it was ruled as hearsay and and speculation, and and nobody was able to tie in exactly. I mean, was there there was blood work and it showed THC in his system, but nobody was able to say when that meant he had ingested uh, marijuana, right? When, and the, the when matters uh, also because the amount you can't say actually influenced him. It, it wasn't under the influence. Right. Uh, and so that that's another thing, I guess, if you're going to get into cases where everybody, by the way, everyone's smoking pot now, right? Uh, and so I think you're likely to find it. So the questions for really are, uh, was the person actually under the influence at the time? Right. Uh, and if you can't, if there isn't some concrete evidence as to when they took it, um, those levels can mean absolutely nothing. And that's helpful for us. Did you have to get a toxicologist in to help you uh, undermine that or or was that basically just uh, arguing on the on the science? Uh, it, we did have uh, toxicologists, but they never came to trial because we kept it out. But right. it was a battle behind the scenes of the toxicologists. Yeah. And the great thing was that their toxicologists, you know, agreed with ours. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think you could even get the police to concede that too, as just kind of dulling down um, because they've become involved. Some of them, the patrol ones, the beat cops who do the regular, you know, scene accidents, I don't think necessarily speak to that. They're just filling out the form and, and they're not intimately involved all the time. Some of the other ones, uh, experience officers are much more involved in um, the DUI aspect of it. So uh, they might be able to help you there. And so, yeah. yeah, I remember the first time that came up in a case for me when I was a newer lawyer, I was like, oh, oh my God, this you know, what are we going to do? Like this, you know, we were in a conservative jurisdiction. I was so freaked out about it. We were in a jurisdiction where it wasn't legal. And then, um, but then, but logically it makes sense when you start thinking about the argument that, well, if nobody can testify that they were intoxicated, then why would evidence of it come in? And so, you know, it, it makes sense, but I think especially for newer lawyers, you're like, oh, this is definitely coming in. We're screwed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. And then you're doing the focus group based upon that. Like, what right. Right. Plus, this kid actually had like a pipe and everything in his backpack. So that was one of the things, you know, Steve, you mentioned about the backpack. There was drug 
paraphernalia in quotes as we <laughs> yeah. were going into this case. And so, you know, the defense attorney was trying to tie in the drug paraphernalia with the THC and it's really not enough. Yeah. yeah. You've got to push that. That's not enough. Right. Yeah. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. Well, I, I just was going to say what you, what you um, were pointing out, Doris, about being really careful when you're setting up challenges for cause and making sure that you're linking the exact language, that you're being diligent about that and, and not lazy um, about that. Makes me think, Steve, of, of some of the advice that you've had in the past in terms of going into depositions and having, you know, knowing what the jury instruction language is going to be mm -hmm. from way back earlier in the case, how, how effective it can be if you are using the exact phrases or the exact language that's going to come up later. Yeah. Um, 
Because I do feel like that's a that's a thing that re- requires more effort. It requires an extra step, but it's so worth it when you can have that verbatim language being used. Yes. Especially if it's helpful language. I mean, you know, uh, our jury task force, um, it is, a, I know for sure, because, you know, one of my partners, Mike Kelly, is actually involved in the jury task force. And uh, I know what a fight it is on the language, right? And so when mm-hmm. you have like really commonsensical language that you can use. I mean, one of the issues in this case was whether or not this was a common carrier issue because there's a heightened uh, duty if there is. And the judge actually in this case ruled that um, this was not a common carrier for the purposes of this accident. You know, like if you were a passenger on on the bus, Hmm. then there would be this higher duty. And we kept saying that there was you know, we were using um, the language really from the common carrier because we were trying to infuse it in into the deposition so that when we got good impeachment, it would have that, you know, higher duty suggestion in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I want a commonsensical thing, as I said, and for the lay people, it's, it, you know, they're not looking at it as that a legal standard. The lawyers right. are crossing that out. Yeah. Right. I, and I do want to come back, come back to that because I, I, I saw the motion that the defense filed and I thought that that was an interesting approach mm-hmm. that they took. But um, I, I wanted to go back for a second to to jury selection, because I think you make a great point. And I just wanted to for some of our younger listeners, younger lawyers who maybe haven't tried as many cases um, when you doing a jury selection where um, you are trying to get people removed for cause can be counterintuitive to uh, a lot of lawyers because you're not advocating. You're not advocating your case. And a lot of people want to go in there and convince and advocate or persuade. Really, what you want to do is you want to you know, find out whether or not they can be fair on your issues that are, uh, are tough for your case. So you kind of got to go in there and at least what you know is coming into evidence. So like the fact that he's not wearing his helmet or like the fact that he's got this bike that at least some will call brakeless. Um, and that he's riding down this road and you've got to, and you've basically got to own those facts and say, you know, is this, you know, is this make you have lean, you know, so much that you don't feel like you can be fair. And, um, and, uh, and I think that's, it, it can be hard to do, especially for younger lawyers, because I think a lot of, uh, lawyers, their default is to come in and just try and win the argument or win, you know, but that's not what you're trying to do in jury selection. You're trying to, you know, get people to talk about their biases and how they might not be the best juror for this case. You know, and one other thing just about that is we have to be comfortable looking for people who don't like us. Right. I mean, as a general rule in life, we're always trying to like, if you don't like me, I think I'll go to the other side of the room, you know, or I, I think I'll just not join that group where you don't like me. I mean, you're walking into a room looking specifically for people who don't like your case, don't like your client, and you have to, you know, be open to um, receiving them because those are the people you're trying to reveal. Like how many of you hate me and let me walk into that and say, (laughs) okay, great. Now that I found you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to do something about it. But, yeah. but you have to embrace that discomfort of uh, shying away from people that don't like you or that you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> you have to yeah. actually yeah. actively say, I'm going to enjoy doing this today. Let me you, go for yeah. haters. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, get to, you get to say, how many of you don't like me? And I mean, or say, you know, you don't like me. And then how many, how many other people agree with what this person just said that he hates my guts? So you, all of you hate my guts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's like, 
that's as a as somebody who has not done Vordire, when I watch it done, I am just so like, I mean, that day is so exhausting for me. Someone who is not ans- asking any questions is not standing up in front of the jury and, and having the focus of their attention. I'm just trying to track what people are saying and flag issues and, and, and make sure that I know what my notes mean later when we're actually picking a jury. That's all I'm doing. And I'm exhausted at the end of that day. For people who actually have to do it, I, I, it's just... It just seems so grueling. It seems like there's so many things that you have to do because even if you're going to sit in that moment of, of discomfort and including like, you know, getting it out there, if people don't like you or don't like your case or or don't like what you're there about, you're still having to be so conscious of the impression that you are making and what you're putting out there while also listening to everything they say. I just don't like, how do people... I mean, that's it. I don't have a question. How, but how do people <laughs> <Yeah>. do it? <laughs> it? It's hard and it takes discipline. And I, and I think Doris is right. I mean, you, you have your language and you get people to embrace that language and then you let them run with it and encourage them to run with it and encourage others to speak their mind too. I mean, basically what you want to do during uh, voir dire is just get people talking and get people saying, you know, why they don't like your client or don't like your case. Another part of it is being comfortable with yourself that this is not about you. Mm -hmm. I I think, you know, when you look at it that way, like this is about my client. And if you're going to judge these facts, it's going to be based upon beliefs. It's not going to be me. I didn't do any of those things. And I think, I mean, I, some of my friends who do criminal defense work and even prosecution, I mean, like one of my good friends who does the, on the criminal defense side says, you know, I sleep well at night because it wasn't me who did any of those things. And so as we're talking about them in front of the jury, it's not me, you know, this is, and I, it's so hard because when you win or lose a case, like I said, it's when you win or lose, that's what Mm -hmm. it feels like. Oh yeah, certainly doesn't feel like my client lost, even though they're the ones who have to bear all the real consequences. Um, And so we kind of have to take ourselves out of that head space and say, uh, how do you feel about X, Y, or Z? And, you know, recognize this is not about me. This is not a reflection on me. Like I said, I didn't do any of these things and I'm not the one suggesting you should judge it this way. In fact, I want to find out how many of you are super, super judgmental against me, against not me, against my client uh, or against these facts. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, Braz, I know you're both thinking it. That's, that's why I have the issues because it's not, it's not about me. And I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's not about me. Everything was about me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, well, Doris, let's talk about, um, you know, sort of how you approach this case as far as uh, coming up with themes and, and what you were able to build um, against the, um, the um, MTA and and from what I understand, we haven't talked about this much. But from what I understand, that the um, that the bus driver herself was a fairly sympathetic individual. So, talk about how you how you develop your themes with that, and then how you handle a defendant or a, a, I guess she's not technically a defendant, but she's a defense witness, uh, an important one who uh, comes across as a sympathetic, uh, likable person. You know that is. What you mentioned there, she is not technically a defendant. We did name her as a defendant. And then we agreed to dismiss her because clearly she was in the course and scope. And that was because we knew she was really sympathetic and we didn't want the jury to look at her as the target, but instead the uh, bus 
company, the MTA, the bus authority, you know? Uh, so that was one just kind of um, conceptual thing that we wanted to take off the table for the jury. Uh, it, she was crying on the stand. Um, she was so sad that, you know, someone was killed. And the great break for us in this case uh, was that the defense attorney, I mean, and I, and I have to say, I, I, I guess, you know, it, what we choose to focus on is what the defense reacts to, right? And the same thing, it goes both ways. What they choose to focus on, we have to react to. And so the fact that um, we had focused during the discovery, and, and this was Doug really, focused the discovery on these obligations of the bus driver, what their training has been, how they're trained to look. And as you mentioned, Steve, you know, there's like eight different rules. I mean, just from the time that you stop the bus, you know, what you should be looking for when you close the doors, which mirrors you should be looking at. And we got all of those things in our, you know, the, um, uh, our cross-examination of her. And so as we were building the case, the decisions that we were making were, how much this is all going to be about, you know, the training and then the absence of following those rules as opposed to directly vilifying her. Uh, and, and that was another decision that Doug and I had made about who was going to cross uh, the driver, you know, the sympathetic female person. And, you know, the fun part about trying a case with somebody you trust is, you know, their strengths. And Doug and I have tried a handful of cases together. And I said to him, you know what, I'm likely to be more aggressive on this cross. I think you should do it. And he's like, well, how is that going to play if it's a male? And I was like, but I know Doug's personality. Right. And, you know, he came across, you know, by the end of, and this is another kind of funny segue. I wanted to highlight the fact that, you know, not everything is paint by numbers. I think we're living in this world of, if you've read, you know, Rick Friedman's book or uh, Malone's book or somebody else, you know, everything is like setting up this rules of the road and all of it. And we, we have those elements. I mean, really we're living basically in the statute. We're living on the vehicle code because if we went by the rules of the road manual that she had, there were too many things that were helpful to the bus people. And so we didn't right. want to live in that manual. Um, but the general principles of, you know, driver's ed, <laughs> right. you know how to drive, you know how to look in your mirrors and, you know, you have to do that before you pull away. And if you see a bicyclist, you know, you shouldn't go forward. And one of the things, you know, we've said before, Stephen trial school is, hey, knowledge is power. And when you have that knowledge and you choose to ignore that knowledge, and you hurt somebody, you're taking away, you know, their agency, by the way. I mean, yeah. that's conceptually what's happening. Um, and it's an abuse of power. So, you know, Doug and I made a lot of decisions like that kind of intuitively, like, okay, we can't live here because it's just a chess game. It's like, if I live here, we're going to get burned, you know? And, yeah. and if I go here, we're going to get burned. So where are, where are the safe places we can move and continue to advance? Um, so, I mean, the, the themes were definitely about systems and big bus uh, and big, you know, company with a lot of resources to teach people how to do this correctly. And then on this day, somebody's life was taken because they didn't use that knowledge, the power of that knowledge. So that was one part of the theme, you know. Um, and if I could segue a moment just to some that when I talk about we're reacting and so are they, you know, 
one of the things we, uh, in this case, what, one of the things that made this case so difficult was the mom had not been in her son's life for the first nine years. Uh, and we knew, and the defense knew that she had tried to get custody of the child and had a restraining order in the most recent years, not, you know, early on. And nobody actually ever filled in the picture of what was going on between, you know, age zero and nine until she got custody. And uh, they did know that she got custody at age nine because the child um, had been identified at school as having been abused by the father. And the father had full custody of the child. But, you know, we weren't sure. Doug and I weren't sure on the plaintiff's side. Like, did we bring this out mm-hmm. on direct? Uh, this could go dicey. I mean, we're not sure. And we're not sure the defense is going to go there because he could seem like a real jerk for bringing out the whole domestic violence history. Um, and so Doug and I made the election like we're not going to bring it up. We're going to talk about, you know, on the affirmative side, how powerful this relationship was um, and how it was cut short, you know, from basically yeah. nine, age nine to 21. This child uh, was killed at age 21. But this wasn't enough time and that there was going to be this full long history that they would have. And then the defense went there on the cross of the husband, the, new, the husband that the mom had now married. Um, she wasn't married to the uh, baby's father, the her son's father. Um, actually, as it turned out, what we learned in the course of this trial uh, was that she left home at 15 with this guy, got pregnant, and um, he abused her horribly like, to the point where she thought she was going to die. In fact, she was hit and rendered unconscious for a long time. And then when she finally got up, was bloody and actually went to see a um, the person, her employer, she was working like uh, in the service industry, like in a restaurant. And that restaurant owner told her, I'm gonna give you $800 and you need to get out. And with $800 at age, you know, basically 16, she couldn't take her child. He had threatened, killed her. He, there was a lot of control issues, um, but, we actually had license to bring that out on redirect, which we never would have. I mean, once right. the defense opened the door and only told half the story, you know, on the plaintiff side, we had to tell the rest of the story and really punish the defense for going there in such a tepid, cowardly way. I mean, that's how it gets characterized. You're like, okay, if you're going to go there, we're going to go there. Right. <laughs> and then, yeah. uh, you know, but then it was actually learning the full horrible story from the plaintiff and she had to make a decision. Do I want to tell the story now? Because honestly, she had never told the full details. You know, we got bits and of nibbles and bits of things. Um, you know, even in the course of getting to know your client, they don't tell you the deepest, darkest things. And so here we were now, do you want to open up that, that basement door that you closed? And it right. was a really hard thing for her. And and she made the really brave decision to do that. But, you know, on the cross of her husband and then even on her cross, it made it seem like it was callous that she didn't care what happened you know, to her son between ages, you know, like three months and nine years. I mean, and um, 
So I, those, I think those are the tough decisions that you make in the middle of trial. That's the drama of what happens when you're in trial. I mean, there is no trial I've ever had that went according to right. the pre-trial playbook. <laughs> right. That, that, that never happens. Um, but it, so, so with that then, it, it, the, so the defense brings out, I, I assume the way they brought it out was that since the claim is, you know, her loss of companionship, that she must have not had that much companionship since she wasn't even in the child's life until after age nine or something like that. And then I, and then once you're able to bring that out on redirect, then the story, it seems to me, sort of becomes, well, they've taken away this opportunity for her to have this relationship. They've taken away this, this opportunity for her to, you know, have a good relationship with her son and to build on that relationship and to have a lifetime together. Um, so well, now it's sort of just like completely backfires on them. It's a little, it, it's even more nuanced than that because, you know, the defense attorney was very experienced. So his cross-examination to the husband was, you never met Luis until he was nine years old. You know, and you've been with your wife now for, you know, I can't remember exactly how many years, but it was, you know, like uh, at that point, I want to say at least, you know, was it 10 years or something? And, you know, before you, uh, before you met Belize, you had never seen him at all. He'd never come to the house. He had never stopped by. Uh, in fact, your wife had never talked about him. So it was like a handful of those questions done in maybe three minutes. Mm. And it was so devastating to the jury. It's like, who are these people? Right. Yeah. And then even the cross of that of um, Maria, it was that short. It gave a very small picture and gave it made it feel very callous. Right. And so then, like I said, it gave us this license to say, let's open that door. And, you know, Maria was crying through her redirect. Uh, one of the jurors was crying. I mean, when you get that human element, and that's what we're trying to do as lawyers is show the human condition, you know, whatever it is at any stage, you know, whether it's in the moment when you're riding that bicycle and trying to get ahead, what's the human condition there? What's the emotion? What's the pressure? How do people get into these circumstances where they're making tough decisions and not always the best decisions? Like, you know, pulling over in front of the bus, not the best decision, but a tough decision when you're boxed in. And the same with this circumstance, you could look at it that way with Maria having been boxed in at that age, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to take care of her self or her newborn child and taking $800 and trying to save her own life. And one of the other heartbreaking things that we brought out in her story was even though she never spoke to her son in those nine years, really like eight and a half, um, once she knew where he was going to school, she found a job at a pizza parlor that was on his way to school so she could watch him walk to school every day. But during that time of not being able to talk to him, her, you know, the father had threatened her. If you ever come around my son, you know, I will kill you. I know you're in a relationship right now. I will kill him. You know, I know you have children now. I'm going to kill them. I mean, it was it, it was that sort of um, just horror that I think made um, this case winnable. And, and like you said, Steve, you know, thank God we're in a pure comparative fault case uh, state because the jurors could split the fault and still you know, show great compassion and understanding 
um, for all of these circumstances. So the, when when this came out, when the story was brought out through her husband and then through her, could you see uh, that? I mean, you, could you see a change in the jury? Did they? I mean, sometimes you'll see a jury, be, you know, sort of become angry against the other side if they feel like they're hiding stuff from them. Or and then I guess I'm wondering, did you have a chance to talk to the jury afterwards? And what did they say about any of it if you did? We got to talk to, I think, one or two of them. Most of them did not want to stick around. Uh, and I have to say, you know, you, when you look at cases like this where it's a hard call, mm. you know, it's not a clear win for anybody. Um, the jurors are not that enthusiastic to stick around. You know, they made a hard decision. Uh, they weren't necessarily for one side or another. And, you know, what they don't have to think about is we are in this case for two years. Uh, and the offer was $100,000. So this is a win, you know. Um, but there, the one or two jurors, so let me actually answer the first question about, did I feel a change? I felt a change. I felt a big change in just, um, not like we're suddenly all on your side, but like an understanding, like an O. Because I did feel like there was a tide against us. Right. You know, I mean, as part of all, just part of the case. I mean, you know, as I said, the driver was hugely sympathetic, was crying, was very sad about this death. It affected her, no question about it. I think uh, the jurors actually felt sorry for her, you know, and for the mother who lost this child, it, there is an attitude like, well, money's not going to bring back this child. Even in California, mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, there is, I, I think, I'm the Gen X, by the way, but I do think my generation is fairly apathetic. You know, it's the generation um, I talk. We talk about this all the time. It's a generation that has the highest divorce rate, latchkey kids, uh, welfare ended. Many of my peers are business owners, which yeah. makes them more likely to be dependents. Um, so there is a feeling that of quote, personal responsibility, right? That the defense is always arguing. And what that usually means is that plaintiffs should stop complaining about having been injured or harmed, you know? Right. Um, and so I did feel at least like a neutralization happened. Uh, and that was a huge relief. That was a big win in, in the aura. Uh, and then afterwards, the jurors did feel like uh, she, the mom, Maria, was very believable and, um, and sympathetic. And yet at the same time, they were divorcing that from, you know, liability. Right. Like that actually doesn't have anything to do. And, and I think those are the ways in which people or jurors try to balance out like uh, how much credibility matters. It matters a huge amount because if she didn't have credibility, I think it just would have been a loss. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It And it does, I mean, Steve and I were talking about it. It does, I, I think it's very interesting because it's this, it, it clearly wasn't Maria's fault, right? But it's this fact of the case that whether in case intake or as you're working up the case that you could be worried about what, you know, whether she was, whether you were going to get docked for damages or, or just, you know, docked in some other way by the fact that she didn't have a relationship with her son for whatever reason for those years. But it seems like it almost turned into a strength for you, unfortunately for her, because it, it, it's just, it was just another element of the tragedy to in this case. But like Steve had said, when we were talking about this case before recording, 
it feels like it just made those years and that time that she could have had with her son, where she actually could be with him more precious. Um, you know, just makes made in for, you know, it makes an already really sad case sadder. And I think when you're trying those, you know, wrongful death damages, um, the challenge is showing how deep a relationship is because everybody can relate to, okay, this is a parent. This is a child. This is a sibling. This is a spouse. You can relate to those generically, but here, you know, the things I wanted to highlight in the, um, direct examination of my client was, you know, when you have this new relationship with your son, now he's nine years old, what were ways in which you were trying to connect with him? What trips did you plan? What was the goal of those plans? You know, how did you decide that it was going to be a road trip as opposed to an airplane one, right? Because they could spend more time in the car. They could, you know, all of these things um, were ways to highlight the intention, the thoughtfulness of having a deep relationship as opposed to a superficial one, you know, as opposed to just, you know, being a foster parent. Um, and, and that is, I think it's important not to gloss over how uh, milestones in um, families need to be brought out in wrongful death damages when you're doing direct, you know, like Christmas, we all celebrate Christmas. We get that. But when you're talking to the jury about it, like, what did you do to try to make that Christmas particularly special? You know, what were traditions that you had and how did that reinforce uh, the love that you uh, were trying to build within this family? Uh, and what things did you teach? I think we're always thinking about teaching a jury, but they have to know that, you know, people are learning from each other in order to feel that depth. So when you have these traditions, what are you trying to teach your child that will carry on into the next generation? I mean, some of it's cultural, and this was a um, Hispanic family, a Latin family, but then there are other you know, things that you're just always trying to teach your child. And so another part of the damage discussion or the direct examination were what were the type of lessons that you were trying to instill? What did you feel was missing in those years that you weren't able to be his mother, you know? Um, so I, I think that kind of flips to, uh, what they're missing after age 21, because he was killed. Yeah. What, in what other ways were you going to experience that richness and what were you going to see as the fruit of all of this labor between ages nine and 21 that you were building the seeds that you were sowing. And I, and I think that's, uh, uh, those are, you know, things like I say, just as when you're trying a case, don't gloss over those things. Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, just my slight nerdiness here, but you know, there, this is, there's a reason why, by the way, Marvel comics uh, are much more interesting than uh, DC comics. The characters in the Marvel comics are actually learning things and they're dynamic and they're changing. Oh, yeah. And that's, I think we all want to see with our plaintiffs, our families. Totally. That, so that, obvious. Yeah. I feel like we should make that the title to this episode. <laughs> Marvel's better than DC. Well, it, it's funny because <laughs> I, my, both of my girls are big into superheroes and I, and I was always big into superheroes and I, and my favorite, uh, my favorite superhero is actually up here. It's da Daredevil because he's a lawyer by day and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> justice at night. But, um, but, and I always tell them, I'm like, I'm like, the reason why Marvel's, you know, uh, comics are better is because none of their, none of their people are perfect. I mean, like they all have flaws and they all work through flaws and like Superman's like the most boring superhero out there. My mom's favorite, like, yeah. my mom's yeah. favorite. And I'm like, and I can say this because I know she doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, that is 
the lamest, most boring pick. Whose favorite <laughs> superhero is Superman? So right. ridiculous. <laughs> Um, well, I, so, I mean, uh, I wanted to go back for a second because, um, I, I, I mentioned this earlier that the defense made an argument that I, I thought was interesting and, and I wanted to make sure I was understanding it correct, but they, they made this argument that in your cross-examination or especially in the depositions, you were using their own rules and regulations there, the bus driver's handbook or whatever, um, in order to, to show that they had these breaches and it sounded like what they were saying is that by making that argument, you, you know, you were holding their bus driver to a higher, uh, you know, standard of negligence or standard of care than the average driver. And then therefore you shouldn't be able to do that. And therefore you shouldn't be able to use those materials, which I've never, uh, I, I, you know, thank goodness, I've never had anybody try and uh, argue that before, but I thought that was uh, a, an interesting way to sort of go about keeping that evidence out. And I assume it was unsuccessful, but, um, but talk, talk a little bit about that argument that they made and how you all, how you all handled that and what the, what the judge decided to do with it. Okay. So this is the difference between uh, a deposition litigation and trial, because all of that actually was in the depositions. You know, this is like, okay, give us the manual. We haven't seen it before. What does it say? What kernels can we pull out of it? Right. And, you know, by pushing that theme throughout the entire litigation, I think that the defense overcorrected. So that motion came about. And this was a discussion my trial partner and I had, which is, you know what? We don't want the manual. In fact, there was one point, and this is great. I mean, just for all of you who have, you know, great relationships with your trial partners and ones who don't, this is how fun this is. Doug and I are looking at each other and we're, I'm like, there's great stuff in that manual. You know, we should be using that in crossing the driver. And, uh, you know, you're going to go too soft on the driver. And he's like, Doris, that manual, I've read it. I've read it inside and out for months. It's not good for us. We're not trying that case. We're not trying that case. He says that like three times. Mm -hmm. And I go, fine. He's like, okay, can we talk about it? I go, we just did. <laughs> and, and the, you know, those are moments with your trial partner. This is why it's a great bonding thing. And like why, you know, we really trust each other uh, because he was completely right. There were enough bad things. And I mean, if you pulled out the incomplete sentences, you know, they look fantastic. And then when you put it in this other global context, they're bad. Um, but the theme that we had built, I think this is the nuance perhaps of just, or not the nuance, but the teaching lesson from this is when you build that, you scare the other side uh, to the point where they think, oh, you've set a different standard of care because the manual is for professional drivers. Remember, you need a different class license to drive a bus. So it's the perception now that they really became worried about. Um, and the definition and where I think you can push this aggressively is to make them scared. And it's not, you know, if we had gotten in the manual, which I think we potentially could have. And let's just say that uh, Doug was wrong and that the whole manual is good for us, that we actually do want the whole manual in. You could get in because, um, you know, the definition of reasonable is under the same or similar circumstances. So it's not just the same or similar circumstances for the bicyclist, the plaintiff. It's the same or similar circumstances for the bus driver with all of the training that the bus driver has. So under those circumstances, what are you supposed to do? 
you know, and I, I think that was a good hook that, as I said, really scared the uh, defense. But since we weren't going to get the common carrier um, instruction, and this was just going to be regular vehicle code violations, you know, which apply whether you're driving a car or a bus uh, or a bicycle, actually, um, it it turned out, as I said, to be a different tactic in trial. Like we didn't want any of the manual stuff. It was enough to get her con- the driver's concessions that this is how she had been trained to drive and this is what she knew she was supposed to do and not have it backed up by, you know, some piece of paper. Well, and then one thing that you, you and I talked about beforehand was that uh, the defense then took an interesting tactic in, in uh, closing and tried to basically argue that she didn't understand her own training. Uh, talk about that a little bit and then how you all, how you all use that. So the, the bus driver, as I said, she's sympathetic and she gave up concessions she was supposed to give up. Like when you're, you are, in fact, supposed to look in your mirrors that if you look and check all your mirrors before you leave, it should take like three to five seconds. And we had the bus video that showed that she took off like within a second. It was fast. She didn't look. And so she had to give up those concessions. And uh, I think at that point, the defense attorney, by the time we're closing, was defensive about that. Like he gave up all these concessions. I'm going to lose. But remember, his goal was to like get a flat out defense verdict. Uh, And so he went for broke on that and said, you know, that was her training was like 20 years ago. You know, that's not really what real bus drivers do. And he so he got defensive. And and I would say like every really outstanding moment that you have in trial is not because the plaintiff lawyer is so great. It's because the defense attorney gave you an opening. Yeah. They, you know, like fell up down on something. You're like, oh, thank God. And when he <laughs> went there on closing, I was like, oh, thank God. Because there was all this damaging evidence about the fact that, you know, Louise had cut off the bus. It was like, oh, that doesn't sound so good. Right, yeah. So when he went there, rebuttal was like, oh, I had a slide that I drew up at the you know while he was closing that said, you know, he said, she said, and I turned it into like a me too, a me too moment, you know, where like, oh, you've got, you know, the defense attorney who's this male who's decided that what she doesn't know what she's doing, even though she's been driving a bus for 20 years, even though she's the one who had the training, even though she's the one who has to make sure on a daily basis that she's operating this safely and correctly, she doesn't know what she's doing. And what, because she's a girl? What are you saying? You know? Yeah. And uh, and there were some nods in the jurors, and it was like, that's right, ding dong. You know, yeah. but it was a moment there. You're like, oh, thank God, thank God. Because if yeah. I actually have to start, you know, arguing it on the merits of whether he should have cut her off, I'm in such big trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say one thing that you you said there is that you know that it's you know because the defense attorneys you know you know hand you open the door for you the but the good lawyers the reason why people are able to take uh, advantage of those things is is through hard work and preparation and knowing your case backwards and forwards. So I do, I do, uh, I don't want to give all the credit to plaintiff's lawyers or good, you know, people who uh, excel at their job, but there's a reason why when the defense makes a mistake, then a, a, a great plaintiff's lawyer can uh, take advantage of that and run with it and, and, uh, and turn it to their advantage because of hard work and preparation. And I would but, also um, say just being, you know, conditioned to read the room, not be toned yes. down. 
Yes. Uh, there's art preparation, but nothing prepares you for the moment when, you know, there's a gaffe and you're like, oh, did he just say that? And, and to, you know, recognize it because I think as a young lawyer, so often um, we don't always readily identify that that was a dumb thing to do or somehow tone deaf to the rest of the jurors because we're tone deaf to it. Mm -hmm. And I would say definitely on the plaintiff side, when you're listening to the defense, listen for the opening, look for the opening, look for some quote that they use that you can turn against them. I mean, condition yourself to say they're going to screw up somewhere. I need to be finding that. Yeah. 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 And, and it's also a great, you know, like you, you know, everybody, you know, however, whatever their process is about making outlines or questions is don't feel like you always have to stick right to those because then you'll miss a, an opportunity to take advantage when you read the room. Uh, but, um, but yeah, you know, as far as like, that's one thing that we do in our trials is we take meticulous notes of, of the opening statement by the other side. And obviously we'll get the transcript it, only because, you know, we want to, you know, if they say something that we can then take advantage, we'll, you'll bring it up on cross-examination. You'll bring it up when you talk to the experts and then you'll bring it up on closing about, remember when they said this and they promised you this or they didn't do that, whatever. Um, yeah. So, um, well, that's, uh, by the way, that's the preparation because you may not hear anything, you know, you've taken all those notes and sometimes it's nothing, but the times when you take those perfect notes and great notes, nothing perfect, I should say, but great notes and you can use it. God, it's like gold. You're like, oh, oh thank yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Well, um, uh, I mean, Doris, we've talked a, a lot about this. Talk uh, a little bit about how you presented damages in this case for, and I guess, you know, it, in, you know, how you talk about Luis and, and who that was. And then I guess how you present, you know, the relationship between him and his, uh, and his mother, um, you know, when you're asking for, uh, asking for damages at the, um, in, in the case. Um, so the discussion about the damages, I mean, was I said earlier, it, it's in the direct, what you choose to get out of the direct. And so, um, an easy place to start the planning of this is, okay, give me photographs of the important moments, uh, and the, and give me photographs of, holidays, you know, times, because everybody relates to those. I mean, those are universally considered special and the photos themselves then identify something that is unique about that family. Um, And so those are the things that I'm looking for in the storytelling. And so it's not just, you know, how much time you spent, but the moments that you spend, what ways did you try to make it special? Um, And you can see then, like in this case, when I was closing, uh, and this was also a funny story about, you know, yeah, trying this case with my partner. Who I just, I, you can tell, I think he's the greatest, but uh, we were having dinner, you know, the night before closing and we're like, well, who's going to close? I'm like, well, I want to close. And he said, well, I want to close. I mean, you know, he's like, well, tell me why you think you should close. And I'm like, no, I mean, there's not a reason. I just want to, cause I'm in the case. It's like, put me in coach. Right. I mean, right. I want to close. Uh, and then, you know, he's, my partner's incredibly gracious. He did opening. I did jury selection. So he's like, okay, we well, go ahead and close. Two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, damn it. I wish he was closing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do I tell this whole story? Like you said, and, you know, using a lot of comparison and contrast. So, you know, the comparison is this is how they built this life. This is, you know, um, 
what, 12 years of trying to um, make this child less afraid in his own home, uh, making this child feel integrated, like he's not going to get hit or struck by somebody that he's protected. So those those were one part of one part of the theme. The other was trying to bring him joy, like look at these family pictures. And there's a goal here. There's not this isn't, you know, the superficial and, uh, you know, glossy people magazine of, oh, look how they had a great Christmas. It was this is hard work to make this Christmas special for this family because of where he's been of, um, like I said, how to make him feel protected. And then comparing that to, you know, what they expected in the next 10 years, uh, 20 years, what they thought they were going to continue to build as a family, what opportunities they thought they were going to give him. I mean, he actually didn't uh, live in Los Angeles. The family lived in uh, near Chicago. So he had moved away actually to get away from the dad and all of that drama. And there was some worry on our part that the jury was going to think he was never coming back. You know, so what relationship is that? Um, so I'm so I'm sorry. So um, your client, she lived in Chicago or was she was from Chicago? Yes. Oh, wow. She, okay. No, no, no. She was originally from Los Angeles. But remember when I told you that she left her family at age mm-hmm. 15, he took her, the abusive uh, boyfriend took her to another state. Um, and Luis had actually come back to uh, Los Angeles because her family still lived there. And it was a safe place for him to be. Um, And so this was another extension of opportunities that she could give him. And as I said, the rest of the story on damages is, okay, you know, what parents do, they give their kids opportunities. They've watched them grow into, you know, fully developed people, independent people who aren't afraid, like I said, of physical or verbal violence anymore. Um, And so what did she hope to see him achieve? Those were parts of the direct examination. So that when we got to closing, I, I think you can already hear that story of what that loss is, because it's not, it's the loss of all of that, the real hard work that it takes to be a parent. And I don't want to phrase it that way, but in the storytelling, that's thematically what we're doing. And then trying to put a dollar value to it was really hard. I mean, I think when you have tough liability facts like this, that's really where the jurors punish people. Um, If there were great liability facts, I do think the actual total um, amount of non-economic general damages would have been higher. Mm-hmm, yeah. I, I think if, I mean, less to do with the fact that she didn't see her child for nine years, more to do with, we blame him 65%. Mm-hmm. And so 4 million seems like a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But if the, if this was like a hundred percent liability, I think the verdict would be more like 10 million. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I just, <clears throat> And and I think those are ways that jurors, like I said, they didn't want to stick around. They didn't want to talk to us afterward. There were hard decisions to be made. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's not an easy case. There, there were difficulties and it sounds like the jury, uh, you know, tried to do their job. I mean, you know, and they, and they, you know. I think they did do their job. I guess, you know, you asked kind of a Steve, a question is just about how to talk about damages. And I think this is the challenge we all have. You know, we've discussed in a number of different um, seminars to each other, like, do you use a per diem argument? Do you use, you know, but I think everything is about comparison. I mean, I, uh, an explanation too, I, I should say, people view giving money as some kind of reward. Right. 
And it's not. And one of the ways I've explained it to civic classes when I'm talking to kids and now to jurors is, you know, as a society, we've decided that money is the only neutral exchange medium, right? You can do, money doesn't take away anything from anybody's physical self. It doesn't, you know, you can't do an eye for an eye. So she's lost her son. Now I want to take away the bus driver's son. That's not going to happen. Instead, money is neutral, it is however people choose to use it. And that's what we as society have decided that that's the best way to um, uh, compensate somebody for their loss. And so I want to take, I want to explain that and kind of uh, in a way that I hope people will adopt and say, oh, money is not evil or greedy. It's, it's neutral. It's non-judgmental, right. um, but it has to measure what our values are. And so, you know, when a Georgia O'Keeffe painting gets sold at Christie's for, you know, $40 million. Uh, how do you compare that to a 21-year-old life um, that should have gone to age 75 or 80, you know, that whatever the life expectancy is for that particular person, right? Um, when you look at uh, what LeBron gets paid for entertaining everyone, you know, in 114 games because he won't play all his games. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how much is that worth? You know, and so that's that's just for uh employment. What about you know the actual life of somebody? How do we put a value to that? And I don't know that those were successful. I have to say, you know, as I said to I think the jury really did decide this on what's a range that doesn't feel like if you read it in the newspaper, given that somebody was 65% at fault, um, that doesn't seem so, like, doesn't seem like we're giving a reward. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Doris, this has been just a great conversation. I want to uh, remind everybody we've been talking about the Renteria versus Los Angeles County Metropolitan Trans Transportation Authority that uh, was tried in 2019 and resulted in a $4 million verdict. Um, Doris, is there anything else about the Renteria case that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you want to make sure the uh, listeners know about? Just go out and try cases. You know, you can't continue to accept the value of a case based on an insurance company's uh, decision. Their decisions are based on the verdicts that are out there. And so I just encourage everyone, you have an opportunity where it is genuinely in the best interest of your client to say no. Yeah. Um, like here, it was a no-brainer. I mean, it was $100,000 offer and they weren't going to, that wasn't going to change anybody's value system or life. Uh, and so be fearless, go try yeah. cases. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that 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 is uh, good words. And, and that is the only way, like you said, I mean, that is the only way you're going to change. And not that we will necessarily ever change, but change the, uh, defendants or the insurance company's view is by going out there and actually trying cases and getting verdicts. Because um, as you said, that's what they look at. So, uh, well, uh, I want to remind everybody, we've been talking to Doris Chang, uh, who is a partner at Walkup Melodia Kelly in Schoenberger. And you can look up Doris at walkuplawoffice.com. Uh, Doris, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yvonne. It's so great to be with both of you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? 
Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh Uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, He is from Podcast on the Go and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.